image, you know, like the problem I had before was like bing, bing, bing all night. Right. Yeah, I had to do do not disturb. However, I realized that I realized that um, if I have Facebook open, because that's how you sent me the link, it continues to bing with the Facebook. So I had to close Facebook entirely. So that's fine. Oh, okay. I got you. And is audio still good? Oh, yeah. Everything is... When you click the live button, everything is normal. Okay. Hey, Mr. Cox, happy birthday. Hey. Was it yesterday or was it today? It's today. Today. It's today. Well, here, some bourbon for the Cox. The Coxman. My Coxman. My first Asian. I was watching that movie yesterday at work. It's great. I was uh, I was with some friends this week. Um, hey, Sid's in. You met Sid when we did our little live video that we met from the cigar bar. I did, I did. So I was with some friends this week, and uh, I made a dodgeball reference. And two of the three girls that were with us didn't get it. And the one girl is my friend from back in the day and her husband was there and her husband leans over to me and he's like, dude, I'm going to tell you the same thing I told my wife a couple of days ago. That movie was like 15 years ago. We're old now. Very depressing. Yeah. Yeah. Very depressing. So, yeah, I imagine that Cox is hungover. Yeah. That'll happen. But at least you get to wear shorts. I'm wearing shorts right now. It's like... I know. 70 out, it feels amazing. It is like 78 here, which is still poopy for January. So I am in honor of Ryan Cox's birthday. I am drinking some fine Kentucky bourbon with some sweet tea. And because of the hellacious message that you sent me earlier, Justin, I went in and I dug out <clears throat> um, a Cohiba Siglo Cinco that miraculously the band just happened to fall off with all of its brothers and sisters. Nice. That's what we will be smoking this evening. I dig it. So, how do you want to kick the shindig? I, I don't know, man. Um, trying to figure out somewhere to put my drink where I won't uh, get water all over my electronics because of the condensation. Homemade coaster. <clears throat> well, I really was itching to, to talk about this, you know, if we had done this last night. Right. Because I was like, I had so much so much to say. Uh, oh, first of all, I'm smoking a Tatuaje Ooh. Black Label. One of the tatuajes I really enjoy. Not that any of the stuff tatuaje makes is bad. It's just some of it's they're they're kind of expensive for what they are. Mm -hmm. uh, pairing it with a diet coke with lime because that's all we have in the house. Nice right now. Classy broad. Classy broad. So why don't you uh, give our viewers 
a uh, segue into our topic from earlier. I really don't know how to like come at it. Well, why don't but you tell an article was published. An article was published. I don't I mean should we are we like should we say like so people can go and find it? I mean part of me doesn't give a shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I mean I'm, I'm sure. nobody, so kinda don't care. Yeah, I guess it doesn't matter. Oh my god, Phil Wolf said such and such. Don't care. Like who's Phil Wolf? Right, right. <laughs> the knobtail guy? Yeah. Uh Basically, there's an article published um, from a source that I don't particularly care for. A, a, um, a culture uh, media outlet, if you will. I don't I mean, I'll get, we'll dive more into that later. But basically, uh, there was an article published um, via that with another podcast and another uh, company like all three of them together sort of tag teamed this article of um basically breeders are the only people that should be using racks in the hobby and if you're only keeping a handful of animals what that threshold is i don't know um then you should not be keeping your animals in racks uh more or less that's kind of the gist of it um I mean, I can find the article and read bits and pieces if we want. Well, I think, um, I don't know if you necessarily have to read bits and pieces, but I, for one, would like a quasi-refresher if you can just bring up some keynotes that will jostle my memory so that we can properly destroy this shit. I don't even necessarily want to destroy it, man. I'm just like, it's frustrating. Yes. Um, and I'm not I'm it, like my my issue with it is more or less sort of the uh, how do you like everyone's entitled to their opinion. I don't have a problem with that. If someone thinks this way, that's fine. But I feel yeah. like chastising other people because they don't do it this way. That's where I kind of draw the line on it. Right. Right. Um, let's see. And this is a debate that isn't anything new. This has been going on since the dawn of the hobby, basically. But basically, uh, simple setups or racks, if you want to go that far, um, versus Vivaria, naturalistic setups, um, whatever you want to call them. <clears throat> and this article is more or less stating, well, first of all, they set there's a difference between pet owners and breeders is one of the things they sort of get into. Right. One might even say that they were, they were very politely belittling the pet owner. Because they're basically saying that you don't have a right to keep a volume of animals and you don't have a right to keep them in a racks type system. I don't know that it was necessarily the right. It was more or less, if you only have a handful of animals, then you have no reason to try and save space. Okay. All right. I'll give you that. I think I took it a little too personally, to be honest. <laughs> I did. Well, is it because we talked about it a little bit? We did. I'm interested to hear your take because you at one point were not a rack person. Right. Right. But you have, you now are. Um, 
I'm I'm 50-50. I'm I'm 50-50 in my physical care. I'm not 50-50 on whether they should be or shouldn't be. You do what needs to get done. And and we'll dive into that. We will. My first major issue with this article is these people talking from a breeder perspective. um, Like, we don't know the scope of the species they've kept. We don't know how many they've kept, you know, because uh, we can break it down and say not every species does well in a rack. Not every species does well in a vivarium, which is kind of my whole thing. Like, well, right. I'll lay it out. I'll lay it out here and early. Like my take on the whole debate is do what works best for that species, that individual, you know, like chondros, prime example. We see a lot of people in MVF. They go, <clears throat> they pet co Bioc or something for super cheap. They take it home. They set it up in this giant exoterra with, you know, a ton of space, very little in the way of um, coverage. And the snake does horribly because it's just, there's too much space. There's not enough security for them to, to thrive and do what they're supposed to do. Right. And the And the famous argument is, well, in the wild, that chondro has infinite trees and infinite this. So how would it need to feel secure if it's in the wild and it's got this whole rainforest that could be its habitat? And it's like you're overlooking it and you're, you're playing the semantics card pretty hardcore. I think the whole argument literally kind of collapses on itself because we're all keeping snakes in a box. So to argue... Yeah. You know, you can't keep them in racks because it's not natural. It's like, hey, well, keeping them in a six foot by two by 18 or 18 by two, whatever. Doesn't matter how many plants you throw in that thing. Yes. So to me, the whole argument is sort of invalid to begin with, like out the gate, because it's like, look, we're keeping animals in boxes, whether they're pretty boxes or ugly boxes. Or spacious boxes. Or small boxes, right. Um. I think it's kind of doesn't really matter. Um, not doesn't really matter, but that it kind of defeats the whole purpose of, of the argument to begin with. Right. Um, so this piece is saying, while many breeders are small enough to stay categorized as pet owners or quote unquote hobbyists, once they start making a significant profit from their breeding programs, they become a business, especially if they're making enough of a profit to make breeding a part-time or even full-time occupation. Um, I want to dive into that if you don't mind. Yeah. So, you take a person such as myself. I've been doing this 20 plus years. And a lot of people add their childhood into those years. I'm one of those guys because, yeah, I didn't know what the hell was going on when I was 11 and I had my leopard gecko, but I was still in it. I was still reading. I was still learning. Yes, I was a child. Yes, I wasn't a breeder. Yes, I didn't go to college, but I was still in it. So, Anyone who says, oh, I've been in it for 15 years and they're only 25 years old, well, that's you could say that. You could. I, I won't deny them that. Now, you take someone like myself who has a what I would consider a very good collection, um, who has bred stuff in the past, who has sold stuff in the past. I breed and I keep because I enjoy it, because I love the animals, because I love the miracle of life and the husbandry aspect and the ecology aspect of it. And simply because I, I love friggin' snakes. I have made money off of produced offspring, but I am not in this for a business. 
I'm not in this to make money. If the money, if the revenue generated from the bleeding can help fund my hobby, can help fund my passion, then rock and roll. But I do not have a website where I'm selling baby geckos or I'm selling baby snakes because I'm not a business. Now, that article right there says that only breeders make money or only people that want to make money breed. Yeah. Can you chime in? Yeah, I, well, I mean, the number of people doing it full time is minuscule. Like, there's so many people breeding stuff that are not full time breeders. They are part time breeders. They do this on the side. They make probably, honestly, they probably don't make any money. They probably lose money. Right. So I mean, well, I'm like, I'm, I'm being honest. Like, yeah. solid ninety nine percent of people that are breeding snakes, they're literally like, even year to year, they're recouping expenses. Sure. Sure. And very few of these keepers that are breeding for a profit, whether they have a day job or not, very few of them actually take the time to calculate the expenditure, the annual expenditure. Oh, yeah. Overhead and everything. Yeah. The annual expenditure of each exact animal, not per species, per physical animal, compared to the revenue generated by offspring. And I would say that the tiniest, tiniest thousandth of a percent can offset that of the people that have a day job. Would then this thing, this, well, this thing then goes on to say, they are still motivi- motivated by an overall interest and love of reptiles, but as a business, their primary agenda is to maintain and enlarge that profit. And in order to make a profit as a reptile breeder, space and efficiency become key issues. Quite often, industrialized care methods, such as reptile racks, is important for achieving this. I don't know if it's important. It's helpful. It's not important. Would you argue that? I I, mean, I have some. Well, that's like I'm split, okay? So I have both. Right. Um, are my bigger setups of things that are in racks in like super elaborate, planted, you know, fully naturalistic, bioactive subs, you know, uh, right. setups? They're not. Are they in something that gives them more than enough space to do what they need to do? Do they have multiple hides? Do they have you know, perches and stuff to climb on? Do they have a lot of foliage for seclusion? I'm talking mostly about the boiga here because those really need it. Right. Uh, yes. You know, I have the dart frogs. Those are in fully planted Bavaria because guess what? Dart frogs don't do so well in setups where they don't yeah. really have any, like there's no plants. They can't keep them on wet paper towel forever. Right. Well, know, that, should be, that should be a temporary thing. Um. And then this says, from here on out, it is important to understand that this article is written for pet reptile keepers, collectors, and enthusiasts. You, me, and others like us make up approximately 99.75% of reptile keepers in the U.S. We outnumber large reptile breeders by around 400 to 1, but due to the success of reptile breeders on YouTube and other online platforms, the other 0.25% are the ones giving advice to first-time pet reptile keepers. This advice, more often than not, promotes the commercial approach to caring for pet reptiles. Which I think is hilarious that the author lumps himself in with the general populace, considering that he probably he, he or she himself uh, probably has some pretty awesome stuff. It is a he. Um, this is written by Paul Barclay. He's the founder and CEO of Custom Reptile Habitats. Oh, would you look at that? Thank you for that segue. This is a, this is a conflict of interest. Go on. Legitimately, like you have, 
Like it's, I, I read the article and I thought it was written by somebody else. I looked at, you know, I, I scrolled through, went through the bottom part and was reading it. And then I saw the owner of a custom reptile enclosure company is the one writing an article telling you how if you're keeping only a handful of animals, you shouldn't have racks. And instead, here's the link next to my name under the article of my website. No one's like no, I, and I'm kind of amazed in some of the comments and stuff I was reading that that wasn't brought up because I was like, no one's gonna like no one's gonna say anything about this. Yeah. No one finds this odd. Yeah. Yeah. Now let me ask you an opinion. If I have a room with forty or fifty exoterras, right, or zoo matter, Zilla, whatever, mm -hmm. I'm referring to a glass type vivarium with a screen top and opening front doors, whether they're stacked or they're on a shelf or they're in a metallic rack, whatever, they are a self-contained glass ecosystem that I have created, whether they have live plants, fake plants, whatever, whether they're bioactive or it's just topsoil, whatever. And I produce offspring from those individual containers and the same offspring in the same numbers and the same monetary value in terms of sold revenue is accomplished from a rack system that is of meager appearance and aesthetics, but still holds the same functional, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The same functional goodness for a problem. That's the whole, that's, that's the whole issue with the argument, dude, is right. like, it's kind of, to me, it's, it's very similar to the whole, you know, do reptiles, you know, are reptiles smarter than we realize? Can they feel certain emotions? Right. Are we we'll never know. The answer is no one's right because no one knows. Right. We don't know if they don't, if they experience these things. We don't know if they do. Same thing with, with the whole rack versus vivaria thing. We have hundreds, if not thousands of species that we've kept both ways. We've gotten the same results breeding wise from both ways. Um, you know, obviously, barring some species that just don't do well in either or uh, of those setups. So, why is it an issue then for someone to chastise another group, like Favaria people, saying, "Oh, you see it a lot with European versus versus American the hobby." If you've ever noticed that, right? The big trend with European guys is they have smaller collections, but their collections are in these like super immaculate, just absolutely gorgeous A plus setups. Mm -hmm. um and then they you know you'll see them kind of take little jabs at people here in the states that post pictures of you know the same animal in a very simple setup you know Condra is kind of a prime example yeah. i've posted pictures of my setups before and i've had people in europe or whatever going like wow well, you guys you guys really suck at this but whether you you know the results are more or less the same so why does it matter? Like if that works for me and that works for you, then what's like, what's the issue? Yeah. And I think it, it's just, it boils down to, it's what makes them feel good. It's not necessarily about the animal. Mm -hmm. They feel some, some form of moral superiority because they're giving what they perceive is making the animal happier. Right. Right. And you can, you can take it a step further and just play devil's advocate. And you can say that, my love for the animal is is equal to the European love of the animal. The difference being is that the European 
may seek more enjoyment or have a side hobby or an extension of their hobby in the keeping and the maintaining of that vivarium. Like, I don't have a green thumb. I am not a plant guy. I have killed a lot of live plants and a lot of terrariums because I just, I just can't do it. So I use fake plants. I use silk, I use synthetic, rubber, whatever. But does that make me bad? Because I don't care about live plants and they right. miss them and they have special lighting and like, that's just too much for me. I don't do well with it. It's, it's, it's something, it's been a debate on, you know, the Facebooks and stuff for, for a while now. It's definitely not anything new, but it's just, it's getting really exhausting. And then I saw this article and I was like, wow. And there, you know, a lot of comments on it online were, um, wow, this is a very like cordial, I guess would be the word, you know, this isn't really shaming the other side or anything like that. And I was like, what you just basically said, like breeders do this to make money. Yeah. Um, Like yeah. this is the wrong like we're we're all you know the youtubers which is a whole nother section here we can get to in a second the fact that they say you know they talk about some of these youtubers that are keeping animals the exact way that they're saying is not the way it should be done um it's just ridiculous like this thing it is ridiculous. It's, it's it's pointing fingers a little bit uh yeah. It's, it's most definitely, it's basically saying in so many words, um, you're wrong because you don't know you're wrong. And I'm going to explain it to you why you're wrong. And by the way, if you want to be right, buy my products. Right. That's, that's kind of what I took from it in a nutshell. You know, oh, by the way, Riley, you are never late, my friend. Good night, Sid. Thank you for joining. You know, like they talk about Barcheck and the Reptile Zoo. Right. And that's cool and all, but if you go behind the scenes, like BHB is a large scale breeder that is their full time gig. Like that is what they do. Mm -hmm. That's, they're not going to change the way they're doing things. Right. Because it's going to make some other people feel better about it. Correct. And one of the things I loved about it was. When they reference Barchek's zoo, they show a picture of a large aquatic enclosure that's a corner unit mm -hmm. that's very spacious. I'm assuming it's for some kind of crocodilian or some kind of large turtle. And I look at that picture, and to me, I think that's a beautiful exhibit. It's a beautiful display enclosure. I'm sure the animals that are living in it or animal that's living in it is more than happy. I'm sure they baby it. I'm sure they probably take great care of it. And it lives a happy life. And I also think about how other zoos and other establishments and other personal keepers have kept the same species, whatever it may be, in a less elaborate enclosure. And the animal did the exact same splendid life that it had. Um, I look at my friend Marcus, who had sun gazers. And these sun gazers were in bleak accommodations for a long time. And then he finally acquired them through legal means. Um, and gave them a 12 by 10 by, I think, 11 enclosure. So that's feet, by the way, not, not inches, feet. So 12 feet wide or 12 feet long 
11 feet wide and I think I don't even remember it was like it was like 12 or 13 feet high whatever it was a it was a big enclosure and we wound up setting up multiple different UV lamps at different heights with a UV meter to get the proper UV radiation at basking level mm -hmm. um there was a ventilation system that would suck out the air and then pump in fresh air that was actually chilled so that we could replicate a 15 to 17 degree night drop each night and it was also seasonally and we actually hooked up the ventilation and the rain system to a weather app that's gps based so if it rained in johannesburg it rained in the cage yeah and, you were about that. right and those animals did amazing now that is a species that is extremely i don't want to say they're fragile but that's an animal that needs an enclosure such as that it's not a leopard gecko. It's not a crested gecko. But at the same time, all of that could have been replicated in a smaller enclosure. And the animal did perfectly fine. But because he had the means to do it, he did it. Now, if someone was to keep them in a 100-gallon fish tank, I'm sure they would do fine. I'm sure. They didn't breed in the 12-foot enclosure. They're probably not going to breed in the 100-gallon fish tank. But that doesn't mean that both is one is better than the other. Excuse me. It doesn't mean that one is wrong and one is right. Correct. Um, so now, like, after they talk about, you know, the differences between breeders and enthusiasts and going to talk about bar check and pet tubers um, and pet tubers putting out false information, which that I actually do agree with because I see it a lot, especially with green trees. Um People saying, this is how, you know, I keep my green tree. I keep it in an exoterra with a heat lamp and I missed it like twice a day. And it's right. like, that's hundred percent wrong, but they get, you know, they have 5 million followers or subscribers, whatever. Then it's like, oh man, you're making our job really difficult. But uh, then they talk about, let's see. Now that I've illustrated the difference between reptile breeders and reptile enthusiasts, more about the industry that we are in and some positive changes already taking place as well as a credible new message. How should we move forward? They suggest that we move our focus away from the minority of reptile keepers, the 0.25% of breeders, and move our focus towards educating the other 99.75% of reptile keepers. Which those numbers I think are hilarious, but go on. Uh, except that reptile breeders have an important place in the industry while also acknowledging that they are in that they are a business and this affects how they keep their reptiles instead of online debates on whose care is better let's simply point out that industrialized care standards such as reptile racks and tubs are only for the breeding business and not for the long-term care of pet reptiles which this cracks me up because there apparently according to this is a threshold to where if you were keeping a certain number of animals, right, it is completely okay to keep them in racks for their existence. Of course. But if you if you are under that threshold, it is your job to get them out of racks and into the pimp mansion setups that this individual is selling and making. Uh, which I thought is just hilarious. It's like why 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 should there be a difference? Right. Right. You know. Exactly. What I also think is interesting, and, and Riley, if you want to throw his comment up on the screen, um, Riley hit it perfect, is that if you look at certain establishments, the display is breathtaking, 
and behind the scenes, it's normal or whatever we want to call normal. Or, or Do you know or, who else does that? Who's that? Zoos. Oh, you read my mind. Whoa. They've got Ethiopian, you know, they've got a Parviocula in the back in 10-gallon aquariums, 20-gallon aquariums, because they're yeah. small still. Or how about this? Uh, you have a zoo that has a 30 by 60 enclosure for hilarious summer. Um, you have a zoo that has a 30 foot by 60 foot enclosure for Komodo dragon, right? And there's one Komodo dragon and it's a big 15 foot dinosaur, right? And what they don't tell you is that there's two more of them in the back and they rotate them every other day. And when they're in the back, they live in an eight by four cell because they do. And that's AZA approved. I mean, don't quote me on the eight by four cell, but that's an AZA approved guideline. I mean, see, Riley, Riley can chime in on that because Riley's a zookeeper. Riley knows what's yes. up. Yes, please, Riley, chime in. <clears throat> Another thing that I'll that I'll talk about too is, um, uh, oh, I'm getting blown up by Henry. Here he is. Uh oh. Yeah, Henry was chiming in that certain, and again, Henry is the king cobra aficionado. Certain, and that was not sarcasm, that's serious. Um, Henry was basically saying that certain species need a bigger enclosure. That's a given. Can a king yeah, that's cobra, obvious. You're not going to keep a giraffe. Exactly. And... Can a king cobra survive in a 55-gallon tank? Yeah, it's going to hate its life. It's going to get obese. It's probably going to get sick and die at a young age. But it's doable. And I'm not condoning that, but, you know, you can't yell at someone for keeping something a certain way just because the AZA says it's wrong or because a European who thinks it should have freaking palm trees in its enclosure says it's wrong. The whole thing is it's like, I'm not saying that they are wrong. I'm saying I disagree with it. Like, cause like I said, this is the, 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 the who's right and who's wrong. The answer is no one because right. Right. Who's to say it's personal preference. Of course, of course. Um, what I do disagree with as well is then it says the bottom line is if we educate the millions of first-time reptile keepers about the advantages of better reptile care, more and more breeders, pet stores, and manufacturers will want to capitalize on this trend. As reptile oh. welfare becomes a primary consumer concern, these businesses mm -hmm. will have no choice but to step up if they want to survive. <coughs> if, they... <coughs> if they want to survive. We need to understand that we are all in this together, that we are part of an industry, and we need to work together to accomplish better reptile care, better products, and higher standards. If we do, others will follow, and we will be able to change the industry as a whole for the better. If we don't, we will regress and may even destroy what we love. Crazy. Yeah. I, if, <clears throat> the hobby's come a long way already. You mentioned this the other day when we were talking about importers and stuff and how they have a bad rap and how like that dynamic is changing because people are now more focused on you know not necessarily like maybe rare species but they're they're putting more emphasis on how they're keeping their animals. It's not like it was back in the day where you know like you were saying if it's sick sell it quick. People are catching on to that kind of thing. Like that, it is changing. Like the hobby is getting better. There are people who are making giant strides and keeping things 
uh, breeding species that haven't been bred before in the private sector. You know, right. I think Cox mentioned Halma Harris scrubs, like a prime example. Like those don't do well out in the open. Like those, so often something people struggle with and help Harris is going to feel secure. She has a lot of success with getting Halma Harris to feed in tubs and racks versus PVC Bavaria. Right. Like Chondros, you know, those, they do great in racks, especially my small ones right now. You know, my, I was just talking about it the other day. Like, I had to downgrade one of my females because she was in a tub that was too big. She started getting weird with food and stuff like that and showing me signs that she just wasn't feeling it. So I downgraded her. Yep. I just you know? did the same thing with, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm still dying from that laughter. I'm still, I just downgraded uh, Papuan carpets from a, I think it was an 80 quart tubs to a 54 quart because they didn't want to be all naked. And I have plants in there. I have IK, <clears throat> excuse me, I have an ample amount of water, but they did better when I moved them into the smaller enclosure. Now, that's not to say that they like being in a smaller enclosure, but they did better in a smaller enclosure. It mentions that too, talking about sort of the pet tuber folklore myths, whatever it says. The most popular of these myths include snakes should be housed in the smallest enclosures possible, and loose substrate causes impaction and will kill any reptile housed on it. The substrate thing, obviously, I agree with that. That's not the case. But I've come to find with green trees. If you keep them in smaller setup for a little longer, you know, wait until, you know, until you absolutely can't anymore to upgrade them. They seem to transition pretty well when you keep them, you know, if they're in a 20, 29 quart, whatever tub, like that female I was talking about when she was in a 20 quart, she was doing great. She was never missing a meal. She was an absolute just psychopath when it came to food, Right. bump her up. And then she was like, not wanting to eat. Um, she would eat every now and then, but she definitely went from being like a stellar, just rock solid eating constantly. Um, to just, I could tell she was just stressed and not, not doing well in that setup. So yeah. like, I like, I don't mind keeping green trees in a, you know, what would be the standard of keeping a snake in too small of a tub, um, when they clearly just kind of do better in that until it's absolutely time to move them out. Like where they're to the point where like they have to move out. It's just, they're, just, they're literally, they've outgrown that tub completely. It is time to upgrade them. Right. And you're not saying, Oh, shove them in a tiny tub. That's not what you're saying for the people that are, you know, analyzing this, you're saying downgrade them to a smaller enclosure that is still humbling and, and, and comfortable for them. No one's still saying, functional. Yes. Right. No one's saying, Oh, the six foot snake in the six foot enclosure. Oh, it stopped eating and it's stressed out and it doesn't want to be friendly or whatever. Oh, let's shove it in a two foot shoe box. No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying downgrade. I oftentimes use the uh, analogy of a child in a mansion <clears throat> and everyone yells at me. And it's like, that's stupid. Just look at Richie Rich. For those of you who are old enough to know that movie. <laughs> I watch that shit all the time, dude. If I take <laughs> I take a 10-year-old child, right? Boy, girl, doesn't matter. I take a 10-year-old child and... The shining. Right? I take a 10-year-old child and I put it in a mansion to live. Parents are there. Friends are there. But no one lives in that mansion except for that kid. Everyone lives in the, in, in the house next door. 
And we find that that kid, although does like to explore the mansion on occasion, 90% of its time is kept in its bedroom or in its living room, right? Or, yeah, the sort of the general commons areas. Correct. Why do I need 14 bedrooms if the kid's only using one or two of them? Now, as the kid matures and becomes a teenager, maybe it has a game room. Maybe it has a bedroom where it sleeps. Maybe the kid has a social room where it invites its friends over. But the parents and the family members, they stay in the living room. And now you have a, you have particular rooms in this mansion for particular tasks and particular enjoyments of that child or of that person, right? So it's the same thing with your snake. I see these beautiful, gorgeous, fully furnished live vivariums for a royal python, ball python. And you have this beautiful enclosure, right? It's this amazing display. And you'd swear it was something crazy and exotic. And it's a ball python. And that ball python lives its entire life underneath the bush in the corner. Because in the wild, they don't live in these lavish, beautiful, jungly, scenic, you know, motifs. They live in a hole in the ground. Right. That's what makes them comfortable. Now, I'm not saying to shove a four-foot ball python in a two-foot drawer. But you don't need to have a six-foot enclosure for a ball python when it only uses three feet of the six foot enclosure yeah well, they included a picture of a ball python in like a prime example of something that is wrong like if i saw somebody keeping uh, i can't find the picture oh wait there it is screen share time oh and we never uh, told riley what he was streaming i don't even know if he's still watching <clears throat> Yeah, the, the zoo keeping things behind the scenes and setups. Right. We, we were like this. We were saying this right here. Like, I don't agree with that at all. Like, that's like, like yeah, that, that, that is, is you're not cooperating yet. Oh. I, don't, I don't see. I got a black screen. You but we were saying how, how the zoo has these beautiful enclosures and then behind the scenes. There's a parviocula in a 10-gallon tank, you know? Is it coming up now? I don't see anything. It's just a black screen for me. That doesn't mean that the people aren't seeing it. I don't know. Well, it's basically it's an adult-ish looking ball in like a 28-quart sterilite. Pretty small. Pretty cramped. Right. So, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with either. <laughs> that like that there is there is a certain point where it's like okay yes that snake needs more mm -hmm. but i i don't know my brain's all fried dude it's it's a tough it's a tough debacle i mean i think we can you and i are on the same page racks are great if they're done right and not wrong and at the same time a big natural beautiful vivarium is great if you choose to do that but the people that do the vivarium shouldn't chastise the people with a rack and the people who are breeders shouldn't poo poo or look down on a hobbyist who happens to have a rack you know what i mean well that's that's what i was telling uh
something like summer that and i was talking to you about that like that whole conversation is pretty much a one-way street like you see guys in ranks looking at people who keep stuff in bavaria and be like oh you're an idiot you spent five hundred dollars on a, you know one of a gecko or a crested you know uh, what a jackass it's always like okay cool like you decided to ball out and spend a bunch of money on a setup for your animal like that's awesome no one's gonna tell you that's wrong <laughs> right but it's like if you keep stuff in a rack it's like cool you're you're clearly a you know a money grubbing <laughs> yeah or my famous thing that i always hear is you spent five hundred dollars on an animal, but you only spent forty dollars on a plastic tub as its enclosure. Where's the logic in that? And it's like, yeah, I should have gotten a five hundred dollar enclosure and a forty dollar animal. Like, where's that at? I mean, I see the reasoning of it. You know, you want the best life possible for your animal, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily mean that it needs the mansion. Um, my cousin. Uh, he has a few lizards. My cousin loves his lizards. He's got a beardy. He's got a crusty. Um, his enclosures are very much what you and I and some of the people watching would consider a standard pet shop enclosure. You know, he's got the bearded dragon. It's only like nine months old. It's in a 30 breeder and it's on sand and it has some cool rocks in there and it has a dish for its veggies and, a, and it has a water dish and the appropriate lighting. And he knows about changing the UV bulbs at a certain date and being mindful of uh, the proper nutrition in terms of vegetables and proteins and whatnot. <clears throat> he is nowhere near as hardcore as myself, as you, as most of the people watching this. He does not go on the internet and read about reptiles. He does not go on certain Instagram pages and dive into different, you know, species and generic names. He just doesn't. But he still loves his lizard. He still gives his lizard a great life. You know what I mean? Right. And me personally, that's not like the way he does it. I would never knock him for that. It's not my cup of tea. I'm not a big fan of the way that he has it. But you know what? It looks good. It makes the lizard happy. It makes him happy. Rock and roll. Dom knows when it comes to chondros. There it is. There it is. Here, so this... This is also... This article kind of collapses on itself again um so let's try and better understand the various components that make up today's reptile together help move it forward to the next level infighting will not achieve this pro the progress that we seek in fact by criticizing and attacking breeders and their level of care it will cause them to dig their heels in and perpetuate their commercial methods even more after all the vast majority of reptile breeders are small family-run businesses and in many cases breeding reptiles is a livelihood that pays their bills and feeds their, feeds their families false False. False. I know. I work 50 hours a week at a regular job. That's what pays the bills. Uh, if I, I quit, I'm going to breed reptiles with what I have. We getting, we're, we're, houses getting taken by the bank. I know two guys. I won't throw their names out there, but I know two guys that breed geckos and some snakes and some lizards. And that's all they do for a living. And they're very, they're young. They know what they're doing. They've been doing it since they were little kids. They're very good at it. They also have been doing some buying and some selling and trading and stuff like that. But all they do is reptiles. And most of it's online. They do not have day jobs because that is their full-time job. And they're making a great, they have a house that's just animals, right? They live at other place. They're the only ones I know 
that can do that or have done that and don't have an actual pet shop. They're the only mm-hmm. guy. Because guys like you, guys like David Hodgstadt, David Hodgstadt has an amazing collection. He's breeding animals that are great in terms of genetics and health and husbandry. The dude also works 50, 60 hours a week at a real, at a, at a real job. Excuse right. me. You know, I myself, I work 40, 50 hours a week at a conventional day job. I, but I also don't breed. I'm just a hobbyist. I'm, I'm, I'm just a hobbyist, you know, and that's, that's it. That's it. Look at David or uh, look at, um, uh, Eric Burke. Look at Owen. Look at them. Look at Riley. There you go. It goes on to say, on the other hand, breeders need to understand that their industrialized production methods and opinions are specifically related to their breeding business. Now, the long-term care of pet reptiles is and should be different. To criticize enthusiasts who are advancing the long-term care of reptiles through enrichment, better lighting, substrates, and enclosures is just as counterproductive. But that just goes back to what I just said. I don't see breeders talking smack about someone who decides to get their crested in a fully planted, you know, any any reptile. It doesn't have to be a crested. Yeah, I don't see that. It doesn't, I don't see it. Uh-uh. I see people talking smack because they're like, putting top hats on their hog noses and making them look like a freaking Lisa Frank poster. Yeah. 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 I see that. <clears throat> I don't, I don't want to like continue like the, uh, the snowball effect, but like to go back to what you were saying about the modern keepers having better husbandry tactic uh, tactics than 15, 20 years ago. <clears throat> I don't want to say it's a millennial thing, but I'm noticing the next generation of herpers, herpers that are 18 to 25, 26 years old, they have a better want or a better desire to have a naturalistic enclosure because they're more eager to focus on the best husbandry they can have. And it's great when they only have a handful of animals, but the desire to have more species or more volume of species starts to bleed into it and then they notice they go man the thing never comes out i might as well just downgrade a little bit and it snowballs and they may still be they may be like myself i have an awesome gila monster enclosure it's huge and gorgeous there's only one lizard in it and the rest of them are all basic setups you know i have a pretty vivarium that's a display enclosure but I, i don't need that for everything so that's why I'm kind of on the fence, in, not on the fence. I'm a, I'm a 50-50, man. I'm a 50-50. Half my stuff is set up really cool and badass. The other half is definitely not. Oh, that's how it is at P and Cody's place, you know? They have some of their stuff in just absolutely immaculate vivariums, paludariums, like literally live fish in the water. Like, they there are some cages, there were like setups where they've just gone all out. And then they have, you know, other stuff that's in racks. They've got, you know... <laughs> they fix it up pretty well too. Mm-hmm. Um, my just my big question with the whole thing is like a. Assuming this person has a custom enclosure business, they've kept things in similar setups before. I'm assuming. You think at least in quarantine, I know like I- you you would think they'd they'd see both sides of it, but then that makes me wonder. Like I said when we first got into it, was like how many species have you kept? You know, as far as the spectrum of things go, whether it be lizards or snakes or all of the above, you know, to notice, hey, 
these definitely do better when they're in a rack where I can't really see them. These right. do really well where they have fully planted Bavaria, UV, all that good stuff. Um, like what is the scope that we're that we're talking about that they have as far as experience goes? Um, and I mean, they very well could have kept stuff both ways and found that, yeah, what I've kept in the past did better in Bavaria, and that's fine. Sure. But I think that the whole article is just absolutely ridiculous to sit there and basically, I mean, it is kind of condescending in a way to enthusiasts because there are plenty of people that have kept snakes for a very long time and have, you know, a collection of three Mm -hmm. and they just, they, and it's because they simply just don't want a bigger collection. They don't have the time for it like they used to. They enjoy what they have and that's it. And whether they put those in a rack or if they put those in full vivaria, like they know their animals better than I do. Like I don't keep healers. So I'm not going to tell you how you should be keeping yours because of what I saw on the internet. Riley's big thing was just the regurgitation of like, well, this is what this one person said. You know, this one breeder that does, you know, I don't know, name something. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, they they keep all theirs that way. Therefore, you know, you should be too. Right, right. You know, little do they know maybe that that person that's keeping them in the simple setups has had way more success breeding wise and healthy, you know, healthy animals as a result that haven't had any issues or, you know, they're not puppy milling things, Mm -hmm. which to be clear, there are bad breeders out there. Of course. There are people that keep snakes in the bare minimum or animals in the bare minimum of setups. They don't give them hides. They don't give them any sort of enrichment, which the whole enrichment thing I'm kind of on the fence about. Like, yes, I do think reptiles as a whole are kind of smarter than we sort of give them credit for. Except green trees because green trees are stupid. Hey, you said it, I didn't. <laughs> I can say from experience, like, green trees are dumb, okay? Yeah. Um, but? But, like, my rat snakes and stuff, I add new hides all the time. I take out stuff. I swap stuff around, you know? When the snakes are separated, I'll take the shed from one, you know, shed from the female, put it in with the male. Mm-hmm. You know, that definitely sort of gets the gears turning. You can see them, like, sniffing all over it, kind of confused about what's going on. But it, at least it sort of breaks up the monotony of things. I agree. Um, the fact that you have the cyania with the with the uh, specialty enclosures uh, top high mm-hmm. box, that in itself is a form of enrichment because now the animal has choices of hide. It has choices of places to go. You've increased the overall surface area of the enclosure from within. That is a form of enrichment. Well, it's funny. There's three there's three hides in both those tubs. They literally use. There you go. But but they don't use the third. But the third is there. That third is there. And who's to say that they're not going in there at four o'clock in the morning when you're asleep and then coming out before you wake up? This is true. You know what I mean? Also, I mean, on occasion, I'll get some live fuzzies. I'll put them in a little deli cup. I'll put them in that, that cage. Because, I mean, they're natural nest raiders. Like, they're, they're the ninjas of the snake world. They're meant to get in, get out, like SEAL Team 6 food all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so every now and then, yeah, I'll get some live fuzzies, throw them in there. They do their thing. Um, with rat snakes, I've also taken like empty uh, like cardboard boxes, you know, from like just Ziploc bags or whatever. You yeah. know, spare boxes. We get them all the time from Pop Tarts or whatever. I'll cut a little hole in it, stick a frozen thawed mouse in there, set it in the cage, and then that forces them to sort of actually hunt. And like they can smell it, they can't see it, but they know it's there. And it sort of forces them to, to move around a little more and investigate and. You know, is that enriching them to where now they're like their brain capacity is is 
higher than what it was before? Probably not, but it is a change up from and day to day. The fact that you're observing them doing it is proof that it is a form of enrichment and it's a form of change in their life, you know? But I mean, well, is it beneficial? We'll never know. I, I'm only to assume that it is. It could be frustrating for them. But who knows? Like it, it could just be stressful because they're like, I know food's here. I don't know where it is. I can't figure it out. And so they, you know, I don't like who's to say. But they eat it. They do. Right? If they didn't eat it and they never left and they always left it dead in the box, then you would know that it's shouldn't be done and it is causing them some kind of stress. Or maybe they just don't care. You know, we anthropomorphize them so much. I mean, granted, we should give them more credit than we do. But sometimes we take it to an extreme. Uh, you know, when my friend Marcus was working at a museum in Miami, they had a gigantic Western cottonmouth. The thing was diesel as hell. The biggest one I've ever seen. And once a month, he would get live bait fish and he would put it in there. And 99% of the time, it would eat them at 2 o'clock in the morning when we weren't there. Or after closing, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And then sometimes we would see it and it would grab them live fish and it loved those live fish when we did see it eat. Did he have to do that? No. That snake lived a great life. Okay. But he did it because what it can only do better. It can only it can only do good, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that I wanted to talk about too is when you were talking about <clears throat> people showing off their stuff, right? You have a breeder who, let's say they go the vivarium route, and this breeder is on Instagram, <clears throat> excuse me, this breeder's on Instagram, and it shows, the breeder shows you, this is my female's enclosure, and look at the vines and the pads and all the beautiful stuff, and then, oh, this is the male's enclosure, and he has this, and he has that, and he has this, and he has that, and what's up, Sean? And meanwhile, off camera... Those aren't even the snakes that breed. Those are just display animals. He has six other pairs in a rack system on newspaper with a water dish, and that's it, naked. We'll never know. Yeah. Because that's it's no different than the supermodel on Instagram who's beautiful and glamorous, and it travels to all these exotic locations, and every single day is a picture of her and her boyfriend at some exotic location. Meanwhile... <clears throat> She saved up for 10 years to go on one badass trip and took a shitload of pictures from that trip, enough to basically fuel her Instagram for another five years until she can afford another trip. But we see it as this glamorous world traveler. Right. Reality, no, it's not. It's, it's a normal person. Or the fact that, you know, maybe they're thousands of dollars in debt from these trips and can barely afford to pay their rent. Exactly. Or <laughs> they don't live anywhere. And they're couch surfing on friends' couches because they spent all their money to live in the lap of luxury for Instagram. You know? And I see the same thing with herpers. There are herpers on Instagram that legitimately do get out there and herp. I have a lot of friends on Instagram, whether you want to call them real friends or not, they're good acquaintances through the wonders of Instagram. And every single day they post videos or every other day they post videos of them herping. Sometimes they find nothing, okay? My friend Elliot... He sends me pictures of cows because he loves cows. He thinks they're adorable. I think cows are adorable. But guess what? He did not catch a single snake that night. But he saw some cool-ass cows. And then you get the other herpers. It's like, oh, look at these 15 scarlet king snakes we got in one night. Ha, ha, ha. No, that's a lie. You're lying. Or maybe you got lucky, but you didn't get lucky 
five nights this week. Come on. It's a facade. It's the, like, I talk about that with Jake and, and Riley and, you know, Andy Ray all the time is like, there's, there's just so much posturing yeah. on the internet, a lot of posing, you know, not, not posing as in like people are faking being, you know, I'm a breeder, but like just, no, 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 just people making things appear what they're not. Right. Right. Know. And, and I, I don't want to like, you know, uh, I don't want to say it too vulgar, but like, I don't want to fluff you and make you sound so great, but I love the Palmetto Coast Exotics page because you post pictures of your animals that are happy and healthy, and you post a lot of fresh pictures. It's never the same photo. You constantly take photos. And yeah, a lot of times it is a chondro on a perch on paper towel, but it's never the same photo. The animal always looks stupendous. You know what I mean? And you don't have to have 15 photos from one night that you space out. It's you do you. It's real. It's natural. It's 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 legitimate. I that's I mean thanks. I just I don't claim to be anything, you know. That's that's my I mean that's that's like my whole motto with just about everything we do, whether it be this podcast, the magazine, whatever, is like put it out and let it do whatever it does. Like don't don't have plans for it to take me somewhere, you know, that it would be nice if the magazine was able to be a full-time thing one day. Absolutely. I don't plan on that happening, but you know, I just, I don't, I don't like the posturing. I don't ever want to be the one that seems to be posturing. You know, I'm just, I love this hobby. You know, this is like, this is my life. This is what I do. I don't want to do anything else. I wake up every day wanting to, to do more in it and, you know, do stuff like this. And yeah, there's going to be some things I say that people don't agree with, but <clears throat> you, know, you have opinions I don't agree with either. That doesn't, you know, not you, but people in general, it's like yeah. whatever, you know, if you don't like it, don't watch it, don't consume it, don't support it, whatever. Yeah. And you, you and I, you took the words right out of my mouth, man. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. You and I have a lot of the same thoughts. I think that's why we're such good friends. Um, we share a lot of opinions. <clears throat> I'm sure that there's an opinion that, that I do that you disagree with, but you're not going to knock me for it. You may be like, hey, man, you really think that? Really? And, I, and it may even make me question my opinion. I may change my opinion because of your guidance or your expertise in the topic. That's just, that's the problem with the internet now, man, is it's made everything, like, everything has to be for a, a yes or no question. Yep. You know, it can't be like, yes, I like racks, but no, I don't like people that use racks that have, like, no photo period, you know, they're, like, Freedom Breeder racks. Like, I, I, I hate racks where it's just an opaque tub and there's, like, you know, a solid top. Like, there's no light getting into that thing. Like, I'm weird about photo periods. I, I don't want my animals to be in complete darkness all the time. Yeah. You know, that I don't, I don't care for, but if someone else, you know, Billy Hunt, he has some racks that are similar to that. Am mm -hmm. I now going to tell Billy he's an idiot and not like, hell no, Billy's my boy, dude. And Billy's doing really well with all his stuff. All his animals are doing really well. I've seen it in person. Like his whole collection is immaculate. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, it's just personal preference. Like that can't exist anymore. That's the problem. You're right. And, and I'll tell you what. It also goes back to being species specific. So uh, I sent you those pictures. I got a couple of blood pythons. You know, my friend um, last week, she recently had a child and she's got a lot of animals and the baby takes up 
a lot of her time, you know, and it's to be expected. So instead of her neglecting her animals, she parted with a few of them, you know, so I rehomed a couple of them to friends that I know like those particular species. And I wound up keeping a pair of blood pythons, but I'll probably get back to her in time. You know, they're only yearlings. Right. And, um, I didn't have a home for them, but I have a CB70 rack from Sea Serpents that's beautiful and fresh and new and unused. And I was like, you know what? Let me just put these blood pythons in there. And I don't have a single problem with that because I know that if I take that blood python and I set it up in a viv, it's literally going to live under the leaf litter its entire life because that's what they do. So I figure if I take the animal out once or twice a week, let it get some some natural light, put a UV light on them for, you know, put them in a tub with a UV light for an hour or two, a couple times a week, animal's perfectly fine. Animal's healthy. And you know what? If I notice a decline in the animal, or I notice that the animal is stressed or not eating or having defecation problems or digestive problems, I'll act accordingly. You know, right, and that's like if I have a, an issue like that with one of my snakes, it starts from like sort of a top-down approach. It's like, okay, what is it that has changed most recently? Like, why is this animal acting this way? Okay, well, I moved it into a bigger tub, you know, a month ago. Okay, but it's eaten this like I go back to my record card. Okay, it's eaten this many times since. Usually, I know off the top of my head without having to look at the card because I don't have that big of a collection. But right. you know, top-down. Okay, it's only eaten twice since I moved it into this thing. Um, Make sure the RHP is plugged in. Okay, it is. Temp gun that. Okay, what's the thermostat say? Okay, that matches up, so it's not a temperature issue. You know, it's just like you start from something and you sort of work your way down. Like, and then yeah. you figure out an issue and you act accordingly. Like, in my case, it was, hey, smaller enclosure because clearly this just isn't working for her. Mm-hmm. I'm going to keep her in that until she gets to that point, like I was talking about, where she's, she's, literally has to move out like it has she has to come out you know she doesn't have the room to move around yeah um and maybe then at that point she'll be more better adjusted to a bigger setup like that i'm hoping she would i'm assuming she would but if she's not then it's like okay it's time to look up look at another alternative to something that's going to work better for her right and she's going to tell you she's going to give you the signs man the same way that we notice uh, a male carpet on the move on the cruise looking for a girl because it's that time of the year your chondro <clears throat> is going to do the same thing. She's going to start to meander and wander and perhaps, you know, do the mamba nose bump thing on the rim of the tub or whatever, because it's time to move to a bigger house. Mm-hmm. Right? And you'll notice that because you are an attentive keeper and you'll act accordingly. I just you asked know, the keyboard. It's funny too. I had a, on the chondro cast Instagram, I reposted a picture of James Opdahl's room. Mm-hmm. Let me find it. And this one, boy, did it. That thing, that ruffle, rustled some jimmies. Like, those are nice setups. James is a woodworker by trade. Amazing. He made that, all those. That's the that's the aspiration of every herper, hands down. I love right. It. But you would think so. You'd think so. I had multiple people pipe up and be like, that's a horrible way to keep green trees. I'm like... This is James Opdahl's room. Yeah. Like, this guy is has bred chondros probably more than a, a very large chunk of people in the States. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one person even piped up and they were like, well, that must be boring for the snake. All they do is sit on the perch, you know, the, the branch all day. I'm like, what do you think they do in the wild? Yeah. Like, I don't have any coverage in any of my green tree enclosures. I mean, you have some le- you have some silk, silk plants in there, right? 
I have live plants growing in the in the water bowls, but it's literally just like one leaf because they've only been growing in there for like a month. Okay, but let me ask you this: If you did put you know silk plants in there, or you put live plants in there, would they go and hide in them? Some of them probably. Other ones probably wouldn't care. Like I think yeah. green trees naturally like they blend in with everything else, so they're not really worried about coverage because they're just hanging out on a branch. You know, stuff flies over them, predators ignore them, whatever. So it's like green trees really don't care if you give them a fully planted vivarium or if you give them paper towel in a water bowl. Right. It's just, it's like we said before, it just completely depends on the species. Mm -hmm. It's so species and even individual specific. Like, you know, I moved my male, my small male Bioc into a 200 quart, like the same time I moved that female in. Right. He's doing flawlessly in that 200 quart. Mm -hmm. And she was just maladjusted to it. So even on the individual level, it makes a difference. It does. <clears throat> we, do, we do the same thing with venomous. You know, everyone says, oh, you know, cobras act a certain way. Yeah, cobras act a certain way, but every single individual animal is different. You know what I mean? And it's like, this animal is going to hood up. This animal's not. This animal's just going to poop on you. Well, yeah. guess what? You don't know which one's going to do what, but you're going to learn it over time. You're going to know, okay, this female always eats off the forceps. This male wants it drop fed. And you, you, you act accordingly. You roll with the punches. <clears throat> I just it, The whole thing is just not nearly as cookie cutter, like one size fits all. It's just not that simple. Right. And I don't see, you know, if like if an animal does do better in a rack and if you're against racks, are you not going to like you're going to say, OK, well, that animal just has to suck it up because I don't use racks. <laughs> and now you're doing the exact thing that you're saying racks do. Yeah. Like what? What do you do now? Yeah. Hey, it does better in the tub than it did in that fully planted vivarium. Yep. Dude, those well, pop- crap. What do I do now? You know. Those IJs I got, man. I got them. I set them up, and this is not my first rodeo with carpets, man. But this is my first time with IJs. I'll be honest. My first time having IJs, and I got a trio. When I set them all up exactly the same as how I always do my quarantine animals, I had them good, and they just they were just not they were just not happy. They were just mm-hmm. They had no aspiration of eating. They never drank. They didn't want to be misted. They were just miserable. I felt bad for them. So I said, you know what? Let me downsize the tub. And I added some bullshit exoterra fake plants. Dude, made the difference. Now they're all happy. They're eating off the tongs. Life is good. Weird. Shocking, right? Actually, I just I just redid that. I, the quarantine rack that they were in, I redid uh-huh. it, and I, I posted a picture of it today on the Instagram story on the Knobtail page, but I was actually, I was shocked. Nobody gave me shit for it. I was expecting people to be like, you keep those animals in those tubs? But no one did. I mean, at least not yet. I mean, there's always tomorrow, but like, that's it. Let's see if we can get this appropriate. That's it. It's just simple, man. And they're doing great. And there's belly heat on all of them. And prior to me rearranging that rack, I actually had uh, belly heat and top heat on on the two on the two female IJs because mm-hmm. they were sitting on the rim of the tub where like your hand would go. Yeah, they were perched up there. And I said, you know what? If they wanted the heat, they'd go to the heat. They want the perch. So let me put some heat on where they're perching mm-hmm. and see if they leave. They stayed. 
because yeah. they wanted that perch. And now their their metabolism is continuing to go, and that's it. it. It's funny, you know, you talked about the the mounted hides for the Boyga and stuff, and mm-hmm. we had uh, we had Alex Menke at Frog Daddy come on the show early on. I think it was like the seventeenth episode. I've listened to it. Yeah, and like his big thing because the big thing in dart frogs is you know people are like Tinktorius especially. You know, mm-hmm. see it all the time in the groups. Like, how many tinks can I fit in this size tank? And you'll have people tell you, like, don't do any more than a pair. Right, right. Well, Alex, Alex's thing is, like, if you're maximizing space and you're maximizing the coverage, right? yeah, you can keep more than a pair in a tank. Are you still likely going to experience some sort of aggression towards one another? Probably. Yeah. Like, that is a species that generally just does better in pairs, you know, long term. <clears throat> So his big thing is like maximizing all the space you can in the vivarium, giving them plenty of, of places to, you know, call their own as far as territories and right. and that kind of thing. And I think that's the case with a lot of stuff. You know, it's just uh, like my brettles, one of my brettles, two of my brettles, three of my brettles, all of my brettles. Uh, you know, they're all on puppy pads or paper towel, whatever. Right. They have hides, and then they have, you know, either a, a David Brahms perch, like one of the ones with the legs, right. that's made for small tubs. They've got one of those overheat. Mm-hmm. Um, my big male has like a Walmart shelf that's been cut to where there's only one, one level on it, and it's like maybe this tall. Yeah, I don't know, foot and a half. Okay. And he sits on that thing all the time. Like you're now taking that space, that empty space, mm-hmm. and making it usable for them. You know, yeah. that kind of stuff, like, makes the difference. Um, Amazons. You know, Amazons like to perch. Amazons also don't really care if you don't give them anything, and you just give them a paper towel tube or something. Yeah. But when I gave mine, and they're, and I'm talking, like, I was keeping some of mine in, like, a 34 flat. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of those specialty enclosure designs perches in there. Right. They sat yeah. on that thing all the time. They appreciated just having that, you know, two or three inches of lift. Mm-hmm. They loved it. They used it. That's it. If I took it away, would they would they start, you know, would they stop eating? No. Let me ask you this. Of those ones that are only like two inches off the bottom, do you ever notice their tail or the lower part of the tail touching the floor? I've seen that on plenty of times with baby baby chondros and baby emeralds, man, where you have a really low perch, or better yet, they'll they'll coil on the rim of the ceramic water bowl. Yeah, and then their tail is just is just gently draped down on the floor of the enclosure because they're waiting for something to run along the dirt and eat their tail. Like they love that shit. Well, that's I mean that's how they are when they're young. They're not way up high in the trees, you know. Yeah. They're they're in low lying bushes, you know, close to the ground where the you know near the leaf litter where skinks and stuff are running by because that's what they're eating when they're that small. At least with chondros, with emeralds and amazons, it may be a little different, but mm-hmm. I um. That tannin bar I just got, I uh, I didn't know how I wanted to set them up. I was gonna do them in a really pretty like vivarium in the living room, and I said, you know what, that snake is too high stress to be anywhere near where like the dog's gonna walk past every couple minutes, the humans are walking past. I was like, that snake needs to be left alone, and I put him in a. By the way, it's a male. If I didn't tell you, um, you did. Okay, I put him in a, a three foot display vision. So it's a vision that's three feet wide, I think two and a half feet tall and two and a half feet deep. And its previous owner had it in an exoterra with a bunch of grapevine and plants and stuff. 
And he told me flat out, he's like, yeah, man, that thing never climbs. It's the only scrub that I've seen that doesn't climb, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, all right. So I set it up and I put some grapevine in there regardless. What's the first thing that that python did the minute I put it in there? It went up the wall of the vision and went right into that lip. Yep. Venomous keepers called the death lip where mm-hmm. the glass sits in. And it's been there for like four days now. So I decided uh, probably next week when I get a chance, I'm going to go to Walmart. And I'm going to get those, they're, they're bookshelves that are a triangle. And you put them in the corner of a room and you push a button and little spikes come out into the drywall. Have you seen that? Yeah, I think so. Okay. And it basically makes a little shelf. I'm going to put some Gorilla Glue and I'm going to stick that in the corner of the vision. And I'm going to put some spray foam and make like a little rock ledge and just, he'll have a ledge in there because much like many of the other python people that we know morelia loves shelves man they love it and even though this is not morelia it's morelia it's morelia um the fact that i watched that thing beeline for the only shelf in the enclosure i have to i have to act accordingly just like cox said observation just like just like uh riley said observation but you used to be against racks. Like, I want to get into that because you used to be a, an anti-rack guy. And I'm really interested to hear Correct. the so, journey of the, the switch. Right, right. I was waiting for you to, to do that, and then I forgot all about it. So back in the day, I kept a lot of animals in small, confined spaces, mostly venomous because it was not, it was not mine. I worked for several import-exports, and when you have – 400 venomous snakes in one room that's probably smaller than an average bedroom you're tight on space now i will give it this i would say 80 percent of the animals that we got in they left real quick they were in there for a week maybe two weeks max and then they got sold and they got shipped out excuse me but it was very common for me to have a three and a half or four foot cobra in a shoebox sized container and it sucked because that animal made a mess every single day because it's basically a lethal colubrid and i would have to change the aspen or change the molds and change the water dish and i was and it it sucks and now you have a cobra that has a horrible nose rub and now they have legions on their face and open sores in their face and i hated it and i was like why do people do this like i had to do it it was my work it's what i it's what all i had to it's all i had you know at the time we didn't have beautiful vivariums for 400 snakes so I did what I had to do. I tried to keep the quality of life as best as possible. And as time went on, I realized that, yes, a four-foot cobra in a shoebox is a horrible idea. But a 10-inch baby gaboon viper in a shoebox is perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. It, it did well. It barely made a mess because it's an ambush hunter. When it right. did make a mess, holy Jesus, was it a mess. I mean, the thing, they poop every, what, four or five months sometimes. And when they poop, oh, it's poop. But it was content. It was happy. It ate. It moved around. You know, it, it compacted the, the substrate where it wanted to make its little little bed for the night. A little turret. A little, little turret, right. A little pillbox. And that's when I started to realize that there is a benefit to racks. And there's a benefit to vivariums. There is. But let's face it. Most of the time, the viv is for us. It's for us. It's because we want to see the beautiful, pretty enclosure. We want to make it naturalistic. I've oftentimes used the analogy, it's a window 
into the exotic land. Yeah. You know? That's why I mean that's why I love the dart frog vivs and stuff. It's yeah. like, that's my own, that's my my own little slice of right. Peru, Costa Rica, you know, whatever. And the more I got into the more animals I got, and now that I actually have like an actual snake room, they're not just in my bedroom and a couple things, I realized that I, I rarely have anyone over. And the people that I do have over, they're other herpers who have very similar enclosures and you know, maybe I don't have the same animals that they do, but maybe they don't have venomous or maybe, you know, I don't have frogs. So I want to go see their frogs and vice versa. And I don't need to have the amazing aesthetics for me. I'm, I'm still in love with the animal. I still yeah. look at the animal and I go, damn, that is a beautiful specimen of nature, man. And yeah, it would be cool to have it in its own little window to Uganda, but you know what? I don't. And the animal's still happy and healthy. So I think that was a, a forgive the airplane flying over. That was a, a, a few years transition for me of oh, racks are horrible and, and shoe boxes are horrible and sweater boxes are horrible. And I was like, no, they're not as long as it's done correctly. As long as right. Well, that's the thing is like you saw mm-hmm. what like you and I are in agreement. Like that's not the way that stuff in racks is supposed to be kept. Correct. Correct. Like there is a wrong way to do it. There's a wrong way to do Vivarium. Right. You know, there's- yeah, of course. I mean, dart frogs are a perfect example. Um, I had a friend who had some really bad luck with Phyllobates. And uh, and he, he basically had four frogs in a very large exo. And these were, I can't remember the species name. They were the black and green Phyllobates. The legs and the head are black and the back of it's green. I don't remember. That's but, um, they were gorgeous frogs, gorgeous. And he got them. Like, probably, so, that's got to be bicolor. I think it might be bicolor, yeah. And... Uh, and he was having real trouble and he lost one of them. And he's like, he's like, call me up. He's like, Phil, man, I lost one of these frogs, like died. And uh, I don't know what to do, man. They're not eating. I'm putting in all these fruit flies and I see them. They're just dead on the, on the bottom of the cage. And I asked him, I said, you know, hey, uh, when's the last time you did a substrate change? You know, did you change the type of water you were using? Did you forget to chlorinate or did you dechlorinate? Excuse me. You know, did you wash out the bio ball substrate that you were using prior to setting up that enclosure? Um, did, is, does your grapevine that is in there, does it discolor? Because we're in South Florida, black mold is a really. Oh, mold. yeah. I don't, I don't even use grapevine for anything anymore, dude. That stuff molds up so quick. We determined it was a combination of two things. Territory <laughs> and the ability to hunt. And we figured out the territory thing because he decided that even though the cage was spacious, the frogs were still glumping together and they didn't want to. It was just because they liked this one little type of, uh, for lack of a better word, the plant that he had in there. So yeah. I said, why don't you spread out and make three of that plant? And he's like, all right, let's try it. So he basically got, um, you know, those foam magnet shelves that they have were like yeah. crested geckos, little food dish in it. Yep. He got like four or five of those, and he used instead of putting the food dish in there, he put the plant in there. And dude, each one had its own little plant. So now each one of the three frogs had its own little plant. And then I wound up talking to a local dart frog guy who's a master of the industry. Uh, he lives in Fort Lauderdale, and he was like, "Hey, Phyllobates need a hunting platform." And I was like, "What are you talking about? This is a frog. He eats fruit flies. You know." He's like, no, no, no. He says, you have to make what he calls a, a, a hunting prairie where basically the center of the cage yeah. is void of anything. Yeah. It's, a little, it's a little prairie, a little field, 
And that's where he dumps the Heidi eye. And sure as hell, my friend made a little field in the middle. I mean, no, about dinner plate size. Mm-hmm. And he literally just went shake, shake, shake. And all three frogs came off of their thing. And they all ate in that little grassy knoll. And life is good. Yeah. And it's, it's, you can't do that in Iraq. You can't. But could you? Depends on the type of rack. Would those frogs be better off? Have each one having their own drawer? If the drawer was spacious enough and proper lighting was in place in those drawers and the proper amount of food and the proper amount of hiding places, it could still be maintained. And now there's literally no stress factor of other frogs. The entire drawer is their territory. I mean, my, my Vitavis froglets are all in a big tub that's a, like got all the substrate layers. It's got plants and stuff. It's a very simple, like basic setup. It's not elaborate or anything like any of the other setups, but like that's their grow out tub. And they, there's at pretty much any given time, there's at least 10 in there. Mm-hmm. And I mean, granted, phylobates do better and like do fine in groups. It's no problem. Like they're right. not like tanks where they're going to beat the shit out of each other. Right. Right. Um, or eat each other. But I thought this was hilarious too. I posted that on the THP. I can't even see. Oh yeah. Box. Look at that. People are like that box is too small for that snake. And then it's like I go and find one of my beards crammed into this paper towel tube to where I literally can't yep. get it out. Like I literally had to like unravel the tube just to get it freaking out of there. Did I ever tell you about the Blackbird monitor that got loose? I don't know. I don't think so. So when I lived with my parents, I had a like three, three and a half of black throat. Thing was puppy dog tame. It was the coolest black throat ever, dude. I got so lucky with a tame lizard. And one and my room at the time was my bedroom, and the room was escape proof for venomous. Um, I had a couple cobras in my bedroom. And uh and I come home one day and the it was a 75 gallon fish tank and the lid is just off. And I'm like, oh God. So I asked my living my living girlfriend, I was like, hey, did you take the black throat out? And she's like, no, why? And I was like, because it got out. And I wasn't worried because the room's escape proof, right? So I said, all right, let's gut this room. I moved the bed, I moved the dresser, I dirty laundry, I flipped that room like the FBI was raiding it, okay? <laughs> and I could not find this lizard. It's like, how do you lose a three-foot lizard in a bedroom? You know, so I'm like, it's got to be buried in the closet. And, you know, me, I was I was in college and I had a ton of crap in the, in the closet. So I strip out the closet, everything. I mean, a cardboard box full of board games from when I was a kid, you know, clothes that didn't fit me that I was destined to give to Goodwill <laughs> and, and no lizard. And I'm like, well, what the fuck, man? So I go downstairs, I grab a, like a beer out of the fridge. and I'm sitting there with my dad. My dad's like, listen, drink your beer take some time and then go put fresh eyes on it. He's like, listen, does this thing make a house, make a nest? Because my dad don't know anything about lizards. And um, I was like, well, I mean, they do steal burrows from other animals. You know, I don't really know about them making their own burrow. I mean, I could be wrong. He's like, well, go see if you have like, maybe he's in the dirty laundry and you missed him. Or maybe he crawled up inside your bed. He's like, or maybe he's in a cardboard box full of Goodwill clothes. Who knows? So I said, all right. So I drank my beer. I went upstairs. And the first one I went to, I was like, let me check the box of board games. And I opened the box of board games. And it's full to the brim. You know, Battlefish and Hungry Hungry Hippos and all the board games. From- <laughs> and 
And as soon as I pick up one box, one board game box, one of the other boxes shifts and you hear, and I'm like, you son of a bitch. So I literally took all the board games out and very at the very bottom of the box is this black throat huffing and puffing, all big and burly. And I'm like, how the hell did this thing get in there? And this animal had the entire bedroom was its was its mansion, right? And where's the one place it went? The tightest, tiniest little yeah. that it. Sorry, that was a really long story to basically say that it went in a paper towel roll like your bears. <laughs> and that's that's the other thing with the whole caging thing is like. It's been pretty well documented that snakes are going to find the smallest, darkest, warmest space they can, and that's where they're going to migrate to. But It's like, uh, oh, ball pythons don't climb, and then you see that one ball python outside that escaped its owner's house, and it's wrapped around a light fixture 30 feet in the air. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, how did it get there? Well, it shimmied up the wall, and it's on the light bulb because the light bulb's warm. Cody McMillan from Canada. 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 I love your ginger ale. Delicious. It's really good with some uh, some some bourbon in it. Pretty good with everything. This is true. This is true. true. Actually, Canada has some amazing reptiles that we don't get. I don't know why we don't just do like across the border imports, like legitimate imports, just because there's so much cool shit in Canada. There's like five species. No, no, no. Herping in Alaska. I don't mean native. I mean like the stuff that you and I keep, but like it looks totally different because it's Canadian blood. It's got that, it's got that cold weather skin. Everything has a maple leaf on the belly. Yeah. Dude, you can't have ginger ale with Crown Royal. You got to do Canadian club, bro. Canadian club, man. That's where it's at. Bourbon, oh dear. There you go. Cox in the bourbon capital of the world. That's right. If anyone's going to know, it'll be him. I'm pumped for Carpet Fest, man. I'm jazzed. I'm pumped and jazzed. I love it. I'm freaking excited. My boss said to me uh, two days ago, he's like, hey, man, February 7th, you're, you're, you're not here? And I was like, no, I am not here. He's like, are you sure? You sure you can't just leave on the 8th? I'm like, no, no, no. I'm leaving at 8 a.m. Friday morning. He's like, oh, all right. We'll we'll, we'll figure it out. Like, tried to guilt me. I thought it was hilarious. Mine says that all the time, too. We'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't have to because I ain't going to be here. Canadian Club is not for peasants. It's for hardworking, decent folks. What is Canadian Club? don't want to pay a lot of money. It's 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 a Canadian Canadian whiskey. Oh, is it like the uh, what's that vodka that comes in the big plastic bottle? Mako. <laughs> I don't no, know. It's, it's 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 not that crappy. It comes in an actual bottle. I, I enjoy it. It's it's a good mixer whiskey. I mean, you're not gonna drink it neat, you know. Hey. Hey, oh Ryan Cox, there it is. Let me ask you, how close to Knob Creek are you, Cox? 
Riddle me this. Riddle me this, Ryan. So, just to go round robin, um, we we vented our frustrations with the article, and you and I basically came to the conclusion that the article is misleading because it is backed by a personal agenda and it also is not the case in terms of the masses see you later defalco bye bye thanks for watching i just i think I, people I sure like on a newer day. newer people in the hobby and because of social media, I think this is a problem. But like, people should do more research than I think they do. And I will say this: I agree with you 110. percent But I am pleased to know that the the, the up and coming herpers are doing their homework for the most part. They are, but I, like my thing is, anytime I'm reading something, I kind of take it with a grain of salt. Like I want to go and you know, I'm reading another article. That maybe says something different that the other one, you know, is either agreeing with what I read previously or says something that's counter to what was said in the other article. And then if that's the case, I want to find another article. Right. It's like, take all the sources you read. Don't take them all as like concrete. This is how it's done. You know, look at other pieces of information. Right. See, you know, if if you read three articles and all three articles are saying the same thing about temperatures, it's probably safe to say like that's that's where they should be kept at. Sure, sure. You know? Let I me think... ask on that note, not to cut you off, but on that note, how many temp guns do you have? One. One. Okay. I have two because I don't trust that the batteries aren't going to be on the fritz, or yeah. I don't trust that the calibration is off, and then at the same time, we unknowingly also have a third temp gun and that's the probe that's tied to the thermostat mm -hmm. because now if the probe says you know 84 and the temp gun one says 84 and the temp gun two says 90 well obviously the temp gun two is wrong or if they're all the same then we're in business how many times have you had the probe untape itself from the heat strip you ever had that not yet i've never had it at home but I've had it at the farm. Somebody went in the farm and grabbed, uh, uh, moved something off the shelf and it tugged on the probe wire. The probe disconnected and was loose floppy. So that rack system went up to 106 degrees Fahrenheit. And we lost like six snakes. Very, very sad day. But sorry, continue what you're saying. Hold on. Uh, right away. How's that Connecticut? It's almost done. I don't even know what the wrapper is on this one. It's a darker one, though. Oh, yeah. Look at that. It's darker. <clears throat> is, uh, is Riley still in there? Riley, you still in there, buddy? I don't think so. I think he's still engrossed in football. Today is Sunday. Yeah, I mean, Cody's completely right. Like, we now, that's that's what baffles me, and that's what drives me crazy when people go on these groups and they're like, they basically want a full-blown care sheet. 
in the comments mm-hmm. of their thread. And it's like, you have Google. Right. You have access to literally any information you could ever want about anything at any given time in seconds and in your pocket. Right. In your hand. In your hand. Um, no, I was not talking about Knob Creek Gun Range. I was talking about Knob Creek Bourbon, which happens to be uh, a distill or still distilled or distilled in the same town. I'm a I'm a Woodford guy, dude. You can't beat the double oaked, the Woodford Reserve double oaked. That is a fine, fine piece of liquor with the with with the perfect complement to any cigar, any any anything you smoke. It's just a good good bourbon. It's good. But there was I remember one time in one of the in the the Boyga group there was a kid who wanted us he wanted people to like basically give him a care sheet in the comments on something and I was like I sent him a link to Google I was like dude come on dude that happens once a week in the venomous mentor group on Facebook once a week it's like hey I'm thinking about getting X Y Z you know insert commonly available venomous snake that they probably shouldn't have um, can anyone give me tips on breeding them. It's like you don't even own it yet, and you're already thinking about breeding it. <laughs> you know, I, I, my friend Chris had to put me in check this year because I was going to try and do some gecko pairing, and he's like, "Bro, how long have you had that gecko? Those geckos?" I was like, "I got them over this past summer," and he's like, "Why are you thinking about breeding them?" I was like, "Cause they're of age," and you know, he's like, "No, man, think about what you're doing," and I was like, "Holy crap, you're right." I was like, "These things, I've only had them a few months." They still haven't settled in fully. Let me give them a year in my care. Make yep. sure they're healthy. Make sure that everything's good. And, you know, hey, even some of the most, and I'm not calling myself an experienced guy, but even some of the most experienced people, you got to remind them sometimes. Like, hey, man. I get talked off the ledge. Yeah. But that's that's another part of the, you know, the, the hobby now that I really don't understand is everyone's rushed to, to jump into breeding stuff. You know, we see it with conjures all the time. People go buy an adult pair and they're, you know, I'm going to pair these guys up, you know, in four months. Mm-hmm. It's like, why? Like, what is the rush? Is it, I mean, if, if it's to like prove something to everyone else, that's kind of dumb. Cause you're the one who has to deal with yeah. the health of the animals, you know, the babies, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I took a year before I put my two together. Yeah. And Hey man, some people just get lucky. Like, you know, we were talking about uh, Malayan pit vipers last week, and I got lucky, man. I I didn't even know that I had a pair, and they got locked up, and then I got eggs, and I was like, "Holy crap, I did it!" And I thought about what I did, and I basically—I don't want to say I figured out the formula, but I'm confident that in the, in the future, when I do get them again, because I do want them again, I'll be able to breed them, no problem. And I got and I got lucky because that's that's a great bookshelf species. You know, you just jelly cup with vermiculite on the bookshelf, just like a crested gecko. Good. So sometimes you get lucky. Uh, I look at, uh, you know, Scrub Python Lawrence. That guy is amazing. And to think that he's been so successful in a short time, kudos to him. But, but he did more homework on scrubs than anyone I've ever known, ever heard about. You know, I mean, he has dedicated his 
permaculture life to scrubs. Right. And that good for him, man. Good for him. Yeah. It's, I just, I think that's, I think everyone, I mean, that's the problem with social media sort of period is everyone sees everyone else doing all these things and then they want to do them too. And I mean, that's fine. Like to have aspirations and have goals is great, but sure. It's like, why, why, what's the hurry? Like, enjoy the species, make sure you actually like them before you decide to make more of them. Exactly. Exactly. You know, don't, don't assume that, oh, I'm, I have an infatuation with water dragons this month and you start to do your homework and you learn everything that you can about water dragons and you buy three of them and you're going to raise them up. You don't even know the gender of them yet. And six months into it, you realize that you're not checking them every single day. You're not taking them out and examining them a couple times a week and playing with them a couple times a week. And the infatuation's gone. And now you just have lizards in a tank. And, you know, we're, I mean, we're all guilty of it to a certain extent. We've all done that. We've all been, you know, infatuated with the species for a short amount of time. But it's the, it's the ones that we've latched onto that we've continued to obsess on, if you will, mm-hmm. make us better with that species. You know? I made a conscious decision that I wanted to go knobtail crazy. And then I realized, hey, I need to slow down, focus on what I'm doing, and get through it. And I've had a rough couple of years. I had some babies pass. Um, my big my big male that I had for years, he passed. I'm only to assume of old age because I got him and he was already like gigantic. And it's humbling, man. It feels good. I don't need to just produce, produce, produce. I mean, mm-hmm. my animals. Right, uh, Sean, that's kind of my thing with a lot of Boellans and a lot of those sort of rare species is like, are they so coveted because no one has them? Or like right. if Boell, if, you know, if Boellans were as popular as chondros were, or, you know, scrubs that are, you know, how scrubs are getting now, you know, would they be loved as much as they are? Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of think they wouldn't be, but two species that happen to be Australian that I am absolutely infatuated with. I want them so badly. And it's not even the money thing because like, if you want something, you'll get it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is roughies Mm -hmm. and Pilbara rock monitors. Dude, I'm not a monitor guy anymore, but I really, really want pills, bro. Like, really bad. But I need to take more time to focus on learning about them. I need to really decide if I really want to get into them, into them, because even though they're a dwarf species of monitor, they still require a decent size enclosure. I can't shove one in a shoebox, mm-hmm. even though I'd love to. And uh, I made a conscious decision to hold off for a few years, focus on the snakes I have, focus on the lizards I have. You know, I've only, I, I used to have, ooh, I used to have a lot of girdle tail lizards. Me and my friend Marcus went girdle tail crazy. And me and him were really like, I don't want to say we had the biggest collection of girdles in the country in terms of a variety of species. But I think I had like six different species. He had like eight different species of girdles. And we wound up slowly selling them and getting rid of them just because we wanted to focus on the two or three core species. So like right now, I only have Rhodesians. And uh, I've got two pairs and they've been producing successfully. And it took me like four years of figuring them out before they ever actually produced because there's, there is no data on it. Like nobody does it. It's niche as, as hell. 
but I'm really happy with that. I don't need to have one of every species in the genus. I, I don't need that. I focus on the ones that I like and I focus on the ones that, that, that make me happy and go from there. Yeah. And there's no sense in rushing it. There's also I, I, people sort of get this fantasization of, you know, what it'll be like keeping something and then they'll actually get it. And, you know, me, like, I'd love to get Chihuahuas, but I also know that I would get over having to deal with, I would be over, you know, dealing with Pangea and stuff again very quickly. Yeah. And yeah, nobody thinks about that. Yeah, like, maybe, maybe a pair would be nice one day. Like, that's mm -hmm. not so ridiculous, but I know... I mean, Amazons, like for me, you know, me and Jake went in on this trio of Amazons that were awesome. We lost all three of them. Right. I just got rid of the last remaining male I had. And I'd like, I've kind of gotten to a point where I've sort of fallen out of love with them. I just, they're cool. I just, I've kind of decided now that I'm just done with Amazons. I don't, yeah, I don't have as much of an interest in them as I used to. And I've, I mean, I've kept a lot of Amazons over the years, but right. I'm just at a point now where I'm like, yeah, I don't want any more. I don't, I don't want to deal with them anymore. Not, Not that they were difficult or anything like that, but it was just. They're just not, they don't really, they're, they're not part of my plan anymore, you know? Right. Your, your passion is elsewhere, and there's nothing wrong with that, but, and, and I won't say, but in addition to the fact that you acknowledge that, I think makes you a better keeper, you know? Don't latch on to something because you think you have to, or, or you think, oh, no, this is what I'm supposed to do, or, oh, oh I'm, I'm known for this, so I have to keep doing it. That's yeah. dumb. Yeah. It's dumb. You know, I, I would love to know how many big breeders continue to produce a species they don't care about simply because they're known for it. You know, or because that's what pays the bills. Yeah, maybe. I think that might be a little different, but I see your point. No. But yeah, man, how cool would it be to have a big ass wall enclosure, like a rock wall enclosure with like four or five little red Tobara little bar dudes with their long tails like in the rock one day one day one day and then like dude i got i got moc reptile down here in miami and he's got some screaming pilbarensis dude the coolest looking babies ever and he's like oh you know captain bread pilbarensis blah 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 twelve twelve hundred dollars a baby and i'm like uh, <laughs> don't crush my dreams like that yeah oh it's horrible horrible they're so fucking cute man <laughs> but it's like a puppy they don't stay cute forever yeah they kind of, they do kind of muddle out as time goes on but it's like doomrolls monitors i love doomrolls monitors even as the ugly adults but like you have this crazy cartoon looking neon baby and then like four months later it's just Poop brown color. <laughs> yep. Still awesome lizards. Love them. It's just, I think also people should sort of explore what they like and what they enjoy. Uh, Absolutely. You know, like the Boiga for me, like I've, I really want to pursue that genus more and sort of get, I don't not necessarily like master them, but, you know, pursue it and see if I, if I do enjoy them you know other species and stuff because they're just they're so different and there's you know, there's not a ton of people really focusing on them in the states which isn't really a drive necessarily for me as far as like wanting to buy more of them but right you like it them is interesting cool to like them huh 
I said you like them because you like them, not because it's cool to like them. Right. Yeah. But it's just like it's interesting. Like it's a, I always wonder about sort of species and groups like that where they're just not as popular and it's like there's a reason i'm sure you know like sunbeam snakes and dragon snakes or whatever you know yeah. vine snakes you see those for sale all the time but you don't see anybody really focusing on them and it's like well there's a there must be a reason why they're doing that you know whether it's a, a market thing or but yeah at some point there's going to be someone who's going to like crack the code on it and really sort of focus on them mm-hmm and I mean, kind of like the beards for me, like I've talked about beards so much on the podcast. Now I've had a few people come to me and they're like, Hey, I got, you know, I got one or two of these things and they're, you know, it's pretty sweet. Cause I'm excited to see other people get their interest peaked just because I said, you know, I enjoyed them so much that now someone else is going to go look into them. And yeah, you know, boy, I guess it's a little different with them being venomous and all. And, uh, you know, I can see that being sort of a big, uh, deal breaker, you know, for a lot of people. I don't know. That's just, that's such a cool genus and it's unfortunate that there's not more people doing stuff with them because they're just, they're aliens, you know, in the snake world. They're just, they're from another freaking planet, man. They are. I feel like, I feel like, I don't want to compare them to octopus, but like, Boiga are the octopus of the saltwater fish community. Yeah. Like, there are guys that, there are guys and girls, excuse me, that have them, but they have them special because they're escape artists and they eat a unique type of prey and they need a particular type of water conditions and mm-hmm. it's kind of the same thing it's like when you've got boiga you have to feed them a particular way you have to try different tactics you have to try you know abnormal husbandry because it's not a ball python and it's not a red tail boa you know mm-hmm. and i think that's what makes it cool man is that it is so unique they are so unique. I mean, they're definitely not something I would recommend to everybody. Oh, no, no. Means, but, you know, if someone's like, hey, I've been keeping for a while now. I want to try something different. I want to try something that's kind sure. of fringe and off the beaten path. You know, that'd definitely be up there. As, you know, give these a shot. See what you think. You know, right. my, my male cracks me up, man. Every time he's out all the time. And uh, anytime I walk by... Because he's at, like, eye level for me. Like, his his setup's high, so he's, like, face level with me all the time. And he's out cruising, and, like, he won't notice me. But when I open the door, it's like that glass, like, moves. And then he sees me, and then he's like, oh. And then he starts, like, rearing up and, you know, getting, you know like, getting, all, getting all pissy. and It's the pressure break in the enclosure. Yeah, probably. Dude, I've noticed that with so many of my snakes is – yeah, there's air holes, there's ventilation, but when you open the glass, whether it be yes. sliding vision or whatever, you open the, the, the door, that pressure, it's like opening a window in a car. Mm-hmm. And they're like, whoa, what was that? Oh my God, there's a human there. Yeah. <laughs> Where did you come from? Yeah, it's like, whoa. <laughs> Am I being touched? I don't know if I'm being touched. Yeah. Stranger danger. Stranger danger. Why does this guy have a beard and ice cream? Just- Oh, it's hilarious though, because he gets all bent out of shape when I'm in there, and I'm like, Dude, "Calm down." It is super adorable. My female, she's completely mellow. She's like, "Whatever, dude, I don't care." Like she'll she'll go the other way if I go in there. You know, she'll go for one of the hides. But the male, he's like, "Oh crap!" I won't lie, man. I was super bummed when I came home and I found that melanota dead. 
Yeah, that sucks, dude. Actually, uh, I, I, I woke up that morning and I went and checked that one rack and because uh, all the tubs are clear see-through and I kind of just like glanced in there mm-hmm. while he was or it was like moving around. And I was like, oh, cool. He's exploring like it's up and at him, you know, and I came home and he was in the exact same position as when I left him. And I'm like, oh, no. Damn. that sucks. Yeah, the babies are weird, man. Like you, you. That was one thing when I first got my cyania. Jordan Russell, who I got them from, was like, don't let these go more than like seven days without feeding them when they're small. Mm-hmm. He's like, because they're so high metabolism. They do, like, I don't think you can have a fat boy. I don't think it exists. Like, their their metabolism is way higher than any other snake I've ever kept. And, uh, you know, my male, I've, after talking to Nipper a little bit about it, because my male, he kind of eats when he wants to. Like, he'll go through periods for like a month where he'll eat solid pretty much every week. And then he'll go through periods where if I offer him a food like off the tongs, he's like, he just tries to kill it because he thinks it's me. Yeah, yeah. And so then I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, I'll leave it in there overnight. doesn't get eaten. You know, whatever. So I talked to neighbor. He's like, yeah, males can be weird sometimes. He's like, I guess they kind of go through season, seasonal sort of feedings. But sure. it's just, they're, uh, they're kind of goofy. Because I know if I put in some live fuzzies, like I know they get eaten. But frozen thought for some reason it's like when he's in the mood he'll do it. But does Nipper have say in here or no? Oh yeah, Nipper's got all kinds of stuff, dude. He's got stuff well, that like I don't think I anybody in the. Hmm? I just know if he had actual cyania or if he just had other boyka. No, he's got a bunch of different stuff. He's got melanota. He's got nigerseps. He's got. Uh, uh, he's got some other species like no one in Europe or the states has. He's got some irregularis. He's got a lot. Yeah. He's got the Cynodon, too, I think. Yeah, no, yeah, I know he's got that. Um, are we allowed to talk about his uh, publication? No. Okay. I wasn't sure if even you knew about it. I, uh, I Him and I talk a fair bit. So I'm, I'm, I'm eagerly anticipating it, but we'll leave it at that. Um, actually, I just messaged him yesterday morning because that gigantic dusky pygmy that I caught mm-hmm. finally ate, and then the next day shed. And I was like, yes! <laughs> so I figured it out. You ready? Yeah. Live mouse fuzzies that don't walk yet. That's just, the like They just like wiggle. Just, just like, just like closed eye, just mouse fuzzy alive. I leave it and I walk away at like eleven o'clock at night. In the morning, they're gone. Just leave it at that. You know, I found that with my uh, when I had my copperhead. Yeah. Uh, like if I tried to offer it something off the forceps, it just continued to strike it. And so I was like, okay, something's not right. Like mm-hmm. it's just eating. But I found after I put it in there, let it let it hit it, and if I just dropped it. Then it would go and eat it. Mm. And I, I realized, like, it, me coming back at it with it every time it strikes it, it's like it thinking that it's, you know, something it's trying oh. to get. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, this thing's used to biting stuff and then it going and finding it. So I was like, well, let me try that. And sure enough, dude. Well, when you had your... Drop. When you had your Aatrox, did you feed it live or dead? Frozen thawed. Okay. Now, when you, you obviously used hemostats or forceps or whatever, did you... Drop it and just leave it, or did you let him bite it first and then drop it? Um, 
it depended on if I was in a hurry that day or not. Okay. Most okay. of the time, I could just throw them in there and, and she'd yeah. go get them. Because so. I've had to do that on multiple species, you know, Michelai and uh, Melosis and um, a lot of the Midwestern stuff, Viridis. I would have, you know, frozen thrown on the hemostats and I would kind of do like little mouse dance, you know, mm -hmm. let it bite it. And then I would mimic it like, ah, you know, scurrying <laughs> off and dying. Right, exactly. And no kidding, bro. Like, I know you've seen the, I'm sure you've seen the documentaries where they have like the Aatrox and the Rubers where they track them and they, they, they have video footage of the rattlesnake tracking the scent trail of the prey. Yeah. That's what they had to do. And that's what I had to do. I had to mimic that scent trail so that it would go and eat it because if i just dropped it in front of it and it didn't bite it that thing would be there the next day just bloated yeah i was i couldn't figure it out though i was like why does this thing just keep biting it like why isn't it actually grabbing it like it's food because i'm used to captive bred snakes that are like oh, okay it's food cool i'll eat it yeah yeah and finally i was like wait a second this thing isn't used to like mice being you know continually coming at it again and again after it's bitten them you know right 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 as, yeah, soon as, I, as soon as I dropped it and left the room, you know, it was gone. And and that's and that's something that we unknowingly we we subconsciously adapt that to our repertoire of tease feeding from the baby chondros and the baby eyelash vipers and this arboreal stuff that we piss it off and piss it off and piss it off and piss it off. And finally it bites it out of frustration and then you don't move. Mm -hmm. And then the animal's like, wait a minute. This is tasty. I'm gonna eat this. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And we realize, oh crap, I can't do that with baby Boiga because it's gonna freak out and just die. Yeah. Yep. So. I assist I assist fed tails with mine for months before they finally went. And they were eating on their own when they were with Russell, but he's like he gave me a heads up beforehand, which is really helpful. He's like, these are gonna probably stop eating when you get them. Assist feeding tails, offer them pinkies regularly, you know, just drop them in there. Right. And sure enough, you know, after a couple of weeks, they, I guess they adjusted and no problems except for losing that male. The female's still rocking and rolling. So good. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Herpeticulture podcast just added to their story. <laughs> I did. Oh, okay. I don't know if you're aware of that. That, that was me. I, I, I know. Jake has no control over the uh, over the Instagrams. So he is too busy posting beautiful sunrise photos. They're not even his beautiful sunrise photos. They're his girlfriend's beautiful sunrise photos. Oh my god! What a jip! I feel jipped. I message him. I'm like, bro, he's just there. Badass sunset or sunrise. He's like, thanks, man. It's beautiful. There's no shortage of those around here, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. You guys got all that beautiful aquatic sunrise. Are you, uh, you, what are you smoking next? I don't know. I have a Herrera, but I'm also losing my concentration, and I'm, I think it might be bedtime. Okay. Well, if you'd like to end on that note, I have no problem with that. All right. Let's do that. Let's do that. Thank you to all who watched and commented, who's still watching and or commenting. And remember, this is all opinion. All opinion. If you don't like it, sorry, not sorry.
Not that we said anything super controversial or no, no, we didn't. We didn't. I think we we said stuff that people wanted to hear. I think we said stuff that people were already thinking. Perhaps I know there's plenty of people in both camps, and if that's what they want to do, that's what they want to do. Whatever. I do think it's funny though how all the people that were watching and commented are kind of on our same page. Interesting. Well, hey, I mean we're that point twenty five percent. So. Yeah, we are that point. <laughs> Even though we're not, by their definition. So. Yeah, no, I know. All right, man. Well, it was good doing this. I'll talk to you later. Later.